what we're getting really good at, and it goes along to the sensors, is having the machine extract data. So it's listening to you and I talk. Not only does it give a transcript, but it detects emotion. Are they angry? Are they sad? Or is there despair going on? And so you can have a dialogue, a real almost human-like dialogue with the machine. They can look at not only pieces of data, but patterns of data. There's a pattern that says this drug is hurting people, or a pattern that says treatment A is more effective than treatment B. Welcome to Shaping the Future of Healthcare from Siemens Healthineers, the podcast where we talk with renowned experts from around the world about the impact they're making on the future of medical technology. Today, Managing Board Member Christoph Sindel talks to John Glazer, President of the American Telemedicine Association and Executive in Residence at Harvard Medical School. He's the former CEO of Siemens Health Services and also serves on the boards of the Scottsdale Institute, InTouch Health, Patient Ping, National Committee for Quality Assurance, WellSheet, and Relationed. Join us as they discuss the digitalization of healthcare, the risks and rewards that come with it, and what the healthcare sector can learn from other digital industries. Hello, John. It's really a great pleasure to have you in my podcast series today. It's going to be very exciting because it's about digitalization. So I'm super happy that you find the time, aside from a board meeting, which you currently have, to join us here and to discuss with us digitalization of healthcare. Well, Christoph, I very much appreciate the invitation and the time we're going to spend together. You got a long-lasting and profound experience in health management and digitalization of healthcare. Healthcare services are facing significant global challenges like staff shortage, cost increase, and uh, information overflow. When we talk about digitalization of healthcare, the topic of digitally enabled services becomes more and more relevant to mitigate these challenges and increase outcome quality. So my first question, John, talking about digital transformation in the healthcare sector, what examples of digitally enabled services come to your mind that already exist? And secondly, what do you expect in the future? That's a great question, Christoph. And I think, you know, clearly we're not as far along in healthcare as you might see in other industries of banking, travel, retail, etc. But nonetheless, there's some progress has been made. And I think there's significant challenges in healthcare that other industries don't face, which perhaps we can talk about a little bit later. Why is it so hard in healthcare? That being said, If you're a patient, you can find a portal which will allow you to look at your test results, request a telehealth visit, engage uh, in administrative transactions such as scheduling an appointment. You can attach a device to yourself which lets you know whether your cardiac function is perhaps a little bit too variable. You're within the walls of a hospital. Uh, as you mentioned, you can schedule staff. You can look at whether or not a patient uh, ought to be pursue secondary uh, authorization from a payer before you go off with another procedure, billing on a variety of things like that. So I think one of the interesting things, Christoph, is we see you know, over my forever career, there was always products and services and software, and they were kind of distinct. And now we actually see the three blurring together in that you know, so your products are providing services. They're letting you know that your heart function is not working or that a uh, piece of imaging equipment needs to be uh, dealt with shortly here. So we see the blurring between those three, all of which are intended to satisfy or do a job or, or make sure something works better than it might normally do. 
Yeah, this makes perfectly sense. Of course, I can only confirm this trend. Yeah. What I learned from our new Varian colleagues from the West Coast, they established uh, technology or digitally enabled services and do radio therapeutic planning. And nowadays they even do it on the grounds of AI and AI-based segmentation, which is very exciting. So customers can really upload their data and the image data and can receive, let's say, the therapeutic planning data back. And yeah, such things are very exciting in my point of view, because it's really helping you to improve the outcome quality, as I said, but also to uh, keep cost under control. Yeah. So what you addressed is uh, interesting because I think also the trend towards more and more variables and home devices, home care devices might also support the trend of digitally enabled services because what we see in particular through the pandemic is a decentralization of the healthcare systems. So the home of the patients become a kind of new resource in the healthcare system. I think also here, it's fascinating to see that you can exchange physiological data. You can get literally into the virtual reality and can drive patient diagnosis, maybe even therapy in the future. Yeah, I think, Christopher, we're seeing a variety of trends kind of come together, one of which is the early advent of, you know, falls under the umbrella of artificial intelligence, very sophisticated intelligence being applied to these, which might enable the machine to do a particular set of calculations or what a specialist might have said, here's what I would do. The machine does that. You can even see in digital therapeutics for mental health, you know, the uh, facing anxiety or clinical depression, they're dealing with a machine rather than a human being. So, you know, an example of to the this will aid or accelerate the ability to move care out out of the walls and make us less and less concerned whether there's a brick and mortar structure somewhere in all this. Part of it, because is, you know, this is the explosion in sensors. So, for example, you can tell from your pedometer in your cell phone, your smartphone, whether or not you have early dementia just by wobbliness of the gait. And so we're learning a lot about sensors. And in addition, we're getting a lot smarter about how to interpret signal that might come with this. So, for example, you might be a, you know, your watch picks up the fact that your heart rate is up or your blood pressure is up and tell by your sweat that, you know, you're dehydrated and then checks your electronic health record and says, goodness gracious, you're 85 and have severe cardiovascular disease. It then checks the environmental data, says it's hot and humid. we got a problem here. You know, we've got somebody who's at risk. On the other hand, if it found that you were 24 and in perfect health, it might say you're playing tennis. And so it brings you to lots of different types of data to arrive at a conclusion about health. But nonetheless, to your point, it enables us to deliver care well outside the walls and in a continuous basis as distinct from when you occasionally see the doctor. I mean, this is fascinating in my point of view. It's very exciting and great opportunities I see already. In healthcare, digital transformation and digitally enabled services are key for solving many pain points. And you addressed already some what are the biggest opportunities and why do they help the healthcare system from your point of view? Chris, there's a couple of you know, ways to look at uh, this. One of which is probably one of the most fruitful areas is using the foundation of the electronic health record and other digital technologies, along with robotic process automation, sort of a form of AI, to make sure that processes work well. It's scheduling. It is determination whether there's narcotics diversion, someone's stealing narcotics from the cabinet, or whether someone's looking at privacy data and shouldn't be. You know, or whether someone is, is being over-utilizing care or under-utilizing care. So right now, that's probably the biggest leverage point. One is because it is, you know, you can really do an ROI in lots of ways. It's easier than other things to see what the return is. 
The second, it's not regulated to the same degree that if we're trying to second guess a clinician or do a diagnostic call. So it is a little easier to move. And part of that means you can make mistakes and they're not quite as, as problematic in this sense. So one area will be in the leverage of just the internal running you know, of these organizations. That's one particular area. The second area will be getting a lot better at uh, using these to sort of predict and characterize a patient's course that says, listen, you're going to go into surgery. The algorithm saying we're at a great risk of complications here. You might want to think long and hard about this. Or someone is diabetes management, is lo- they're losing control of that. You might want to intercede. So managing a clinical process uh, and making sure that it follows the course that it ought to follow. And then the last part I would point out, Christoph, is what we're getting really good at, and it goes along to the sensors, is having the machine extract data. So it's listening to you and I talk. Not only does it give a transcript, but it detects emotion. Are they angry? Are they sad? Or is there despair going on? And so you can have a dialogue, a real almost human-like dialogue with the machine. They can look at not only pieces of data, but patterns of data. There's a pattern that says this drug is hurting people, or a pattern that says treatment A is more effective than treatment B. I think some of the areas will be administrative processes or clinical processes, along with being able to pull data out and then model it and project either someone's unhappy or to project that someone needs to have a physician appointment because their diabetes is out of control. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. I see maybe another area interested in your opinion. I mean, we see worldwide the trend of staff shortage. I mentioned it already shortly. I mean, what I learned is I think WHO and others are communicating this. 18 million healthcare workers uh, will be short by 2030. That's quite a number and a big problem. On the other side, you have an increase of the global population. I think an opportunity might be also improving access to care and serving maybe three to four billion people who have no access to care currently. It's around 50% of the world population. I find it very interesting to think, you, you mentioned robotics, for example, already, right? If you conceive this remotely controlled, where you can bring expertise into areas where you typically don't have the expertise, might be even supported by AI in order to support personnel, which is not so experienced in certain areas. I mean, that's also a fantastic area in my point of view, where we can do good and where digitalization has really a huge opportunity also for people who typically have no access to care. Well, I think you're correct, Christoph. And, you know, we we'll always have to remember that part of healthcare is very personal. You want to talk to somebody, sure. a real human being. So there's always that aspect of this. That being said, there is a real shortage or a looming shortage. And even when there's not a shortage, there can be maldistribution. In other words, all the doctors are in the cities, but they're not out in the rural areas. And so you know, we have enough. They're just not located correctly. So I think we can use the technology to do a number of things, one of which is to help people who may not be an MD or may not be a nurse practitioner, but have some clinical training, you know, raise what they're capable of because they're assisted by the technology. We we'll often do that. The second is a technology guiding you or me. It says rather than call the doctor, I the machine will tell you whether your three-year-old who's, you know, crying at two in the morning with a fever really should, don't worry about it, or golly, get the kid to the hospital right away. So rather than you getting on the phone and trying to track down a nurse, the machine helps you uh, interpret what is going on, et cetera. So and then obviously telehealth can provide access to care for people who are in, you know, very difficult find locations here. So I don't know whether all of that will make that shortage uh, go away. I'd be surprised. But nonetheless, it might make it a lot more manageable, frankly, uh, and less, less problematic than it might be otherwise.
Now we have discussed all the opportunities and it's very exciting. And sometimes it's even a little bit of hype, sometimes a little bit overstressed. Everybody talks about digitalization. Everybody talks about AI. Let's look at it from a different angle. What risks, John, do you see with the digital transformation in healthcare systems? Well, I think, Christopher, you know, anytime you get new technologies, you provide value and you introduce problems. So the automobile provides value, but it introduces problems. It pollutes up the air, and you run over people, and, you know, every, it always happens, et cetera. I think some of the risk here, and particularly if you look at, you know, the er early territory of AI, what people are discovering is that at times the algorithm can have biases. They were trained on Caucasian faces, but do a crummy job on Asian faces or African-American faces. So there's bias in the data. At times, the testing of these algorithms is really poor. And so people have looked at all the algorithms that were developed at the height of the pandemic. You know, can we predict whether John or Christoph would get COVID? And if so, how severe would it be? Is the testing is very poor and virtually all of them were not clinically useful. So you can have poor testing, and you, but you don't know that if you were using these things. So there's risk with the algorithm, what I call algorithm risk that comes with uh, AI. Now that's coupled with other risks that we have just in general with the technology. We have to worry about ransomware. We have to worry about malware. And particularly as we become reliant on them, they really can cripple you and sort of grind you to a halt on these things. So there's technical risk and technical reliance. I do think, Chris, there's also management risk. In other words, I see, and I suspect you see too, what we call the shiny object syndrome. In other words, the leadership gets so excited about the technology and dazzled by it and they turn dumb. You know, they forget why they're hearing. They just want to have their picture taken with, you know, the technology, et cetera. And so the risk is they spend money and scarce resources, but it doesn't make the organization any better as a result of that. So there's just a misapplication risk that goes on here. And I think the other risk that can be, and you see this in uh, a lot of digital transformations uh, and others, is it's just poorly implemented. And so what could have been value that is this big actually is a lot less than that because we didn't train well. We didn't do the workflow changes well, or a variety of things like that. So there's a risk of underperformance or under delivery to go with these. So all of these require management and, and vigilance to make sure that when we invest, we get the most return that we possibly can out of the technology. So if I got you correctly, I think you are talking about cybersecurity, which is essential. I mean, patient data is probably the most sensitive data we are aware about. You talk about, I think it's the field of data fairness, what you mentioned at the beginning, the algorithm bias, right? Where you have, let's say, a very particular race or gender or age um, specified, but not a broad range of people so you might get also a biased result maybe a wrong result is this what you said right yeah i think you know when people train algorithms they're trained on data and usually large amounts of data and often the the problem that happens is the person developing the algorithm thinks they understand what the data is captured but it, they're wrong they think it represents all people but it doesn't really it's skewed it's skewed to caucasians in some ways so that's one mistake they make they just don't know the data well enough Second mistake they can make is forget the data actually drifts. And so, you know, if you were to say, I want to do an algorithm in the early stages of COVID to predict, and now I want to do an algorithm, it's different. We got a different variant. We got different treatments, et cetera. So whatever algorithm you had two years ago, it's wrong because the data in the world evolved in some way. So they forget that. You know, they forget that the algorithm has to evolve as the circumstances evolve, you know, along with that stuff. So you can make those kinds of mistakes uh, with, you know, the particular algorithms and approaches to AI and to get in trouble as a result of that. And actually, you know, you're just misled. I mean, to give you an example, Christoph, of people not understanding the data, there was a relatively well-publicized example of people trying to predict who is really sick. 
you know, I want to look across the population and identify people who are really sick and should be looked uh, And one of the variables looked at was how, what was the cost of the care provided to them last year? And so uh, the theory was the more costs, the sicker you were. Except when you're poor or live in very rural areas, your costs are really low. Why? Because you can't get to care. You can't afford the care. So you have very sick people with very low costs. And so the algorithm would misapply because the people who developed the algorithm didn't understand, you know, the population they were trying to model. So anyway, that kind of example can happen. In my point of view, this should be addressed much more prominently yeah, during the scientific talks and so on, because everybody talks about the opportunities of AI, but maybe not enough about the risks. Yeah. Another topic, and I mean, you, you shortly mentioned it, in my point of view, is also cultural transformation. Digitalization means also cultural transformation. You got to take your people, your employees, you know, from every age, let's say, uh, you got to take them with you on the journey. That's also quite a challenge yeah, because you the world is not full of digital natives, right? Uh, some mm -hmm. might be more advanced and, and more experienced and some are less. At least for us at Siemens Health Seniors, it's a challenge, right, to really drive digitalization throughout the 66,000 employees of the company. Yeah? Talking about risks, I'm personally always, you know, struck and excited by quantum computing. People might think, hey, that's far out. But when you look a little bit behind the curtain, as you know very well, it's uh, already progressing very quickly, nearly exponentially. On one hand, it's, yeah, I would say pretty risky and dangerous because it can encrypt what, uh, you know, it can render data very quickly into something insecure. And on the other side, yeah, you might have uh, reduced uh, man in the middle attacks, right, because of the The, the physics of this system. So that's also a very, it's a side topic for the moment, but I think it's going to come maybe sooner than we might think. I, I wish I could live forever in some ways, because there's always this really exciting technology that's coming. Uh, not quite here yet. And, you know, I think, for example, we're all moving to 5G, and I think we have only the, you know, vaguest understanding of what that will mean. Although every time we increase bandwidth and increase computing power, we find ways to use it in remarkable ways, et cetera. So I think there's some really neat stuff. It'd be neat to, you know, go forward 30 years or 40 years and come back and just see what has evolved here, quantum computing and other technology. Stuff that, in fact, stuff that you and I are probably in the lab somewhere, but you and I have yet to be aware of. Yes, true. Yeah. So healthcare is lagging behind other industries like, you know, the travel or the financial services, as we know them, when it comes to digital transformation. John, why is this and what can we do to accelerate our progress in the field? I think there are a number of things, one of which is it is highly regulated. And so it's not the only industry that's highly regulated, but it is highly regulated. So there are hoops to go through. I mean, Siemens, you know this as well as anybody. It's the regulations globally that you have to go through this. The second is we are very much relying on the scientific method. We publish stuff. People review it. You know, and it takes a while for it to move through the literature and then to be accepted. But if you're in Silicon Valley coming up with the next game, or TikTok or whatever, you're not publishing, you're not going through that rigor. You know, you put it out there, you see what happens. So anyway, there's a there's a cadence and a timetable that goes with the scientific rigor that happens. The third thing that I think it has is we have very complex processes. And so there are parts of healthcare which are almost robotic. You know, doing a chemistry result for potassium, almost a robotic process. But there are other processes that, you know, the diagnosis of a patient with a complex and rare form of cancer, that is, you know, that is, wow. 
you know, a hypothesis, we test, and it's really hard to automate those kinds of processes when, I mean, it's easy enough to do a prescription refill, but golly, trying to help the doctor figure out the right form of cancer, that's really complicated. So we have very complex processes that go on. The other is we have an incredibly complex knowledge domain that, you know, that goes on there. It was interesting, Chris, in 1974, the American Board of Medical Specialties identified 10 specialties in medicine. Last year, 135. Now, why does that happen? Why do you go from 10 to 135 over 50 years? Because the knowledge explosion gets to be so much, you have to have to break it down into pieces for people like you to even master it, et cetera. So there's just so much knowledge that's out there. And even there, we actually don't know why sleep works the way that it works. And we don't know why certain medications work. So it's very hard to sort of support a knowledge domain that's that complicated, uh, that big, uh, and things along those lines. And I think the last point, and perhaps in some ways the most real, is that the payment system is often doesn't reward you for making these kinds of investments, you know, particularly under the fee for service, your pay for volume. You know, this doesn't mean that people go out of the way to do a bad job. It's just that they don't get rewarded for doing a good job. So you add all that up and you say, well, you know, can we make it move faster? As a result, I said, well, you know, you're probably stuck with a complex knowledge domain. You're probably stuck with a scientific method. We actually want rigor before we introduce new interventions. But what we can do is alter the payment mechanism to be more financially incent people to make these kinds of adoptions. We can also take advantage of the fact that increasingly, we have young people who are very conversant with the technology, consumers are very conversant with the technology. And one of the things, Christoph, having been in this industry for 100 years now, when I first got into it and you went into a boardroom, you know, people, all the boardroom were very smart, you know, captains of industry, but they didn't understand technology at all. They didn't understand computer tech and they were afraid of it, frankly. But now you go in there and they understand it. They've been through it. They've been through implementations. And so there's a lot more awareness of how to uh, manage. So we, we take advantage of our growth and our improved understanding. So, so we'll move it faster. Do I think we'll move as fast as the gaming industry or, and, or other social media? I'm not so sure about that. A great summary, I have to say. I think the pandemic has certainly helped. I mean, when I talk to customers around the globe, they all tell me the same thing, right? Even the really non digital natives or the non-digital experienced ones, right? They say the pandemic, you know, have has driven really my digitalization, my understanding of digitalization significantly. Yeah? So I think this is probably also a little bit an accelerator, but I think you summarized everything very nicely, uh, including evidence which is needed in medicine and which takes time. That's very logical. I think one of the things you find, Chris, is when you look at digital transformation, what shapes it? You know, you know, if you take the form of transformation, well, a number of factors, you know, one of which is new technology. So here comes AI, and all of a sudden your transformation is shaped by what you can do. But a crisis does this too. And whether it's the financial crisis of 2008 or the current pandemic, and to your point, a lot of what people are seeing is that whatever uh, agenda they had for reaching out to patients, they accelerated that. They brought it forward in time. Or telework, you know, people working from home. But the others, it probably accelerated the development of analytics because a lot of hospitals were flying blind. I don't know how many beds I have and I don't know how many nurses I have. And, you know, I got and I have to do real time. It also meant they often made decisions faster. They didn't have time to have lots of committee meetings. They had to make move now. And so a lot of decision processes were accelerated. So I think there's a bunch of changes. We'll see how many of these are permanent. I would say Germany probably is a country where we still have a way to go in terms of digitalization. So I know I know what you mean. And I mean, at the end, yeah. In my point of view, we should never strive for digitalization for the sake of digitalization. It should really think 
in terms of a value stream analysis, where does it help most, right? And should probably start here and then, you know, expand step by step, yeah. Let's look a little bit across, yeah. Driving digital transformation and digitally enabled services, Chan. Is there anything we can learn from other industries in your point of view? Yeah, I think we can always, Christoph, learn from other industries, but in particular here, and you have to remember that you know we can learn from digital natives like Netflix and Google, and we can also live from brick and mortar, you know, Procter and Gamble, Nike, well, Siemens, you know, brick and mortar who's now digitizing. So you can learn from both. What you find when you look across industries is most of them fail. Most of the digital transformations fail, about 60 to 70% fail. You say, what does failure mean? Well, it's not that like say a mushroom cloud goes off and it's catastrophic. But it, rather what you see is way over budget, took way much longer than we thought, and the results are disappointing. So did we cross the finish line? Yes, but people say, what was that all about, et cetera. When they're successful, you see three things. One of what you just pointed out is what they don't do is get stuck in the shiny object syndrome. They're trying to say, what are we trying to do and how will the technology happen? So rather than digital transformation, it's transformation enabled by digital technology. What is the transformation and how do we map the technology? So it's very clear what we're after. That's number one. Number two is invariably they change the business model. And the business, more than just incremental improvement, they really change what they do and materially how they do it. You know, an example I use from time to time, Christoph, when I teach this is Amazon.com, which is not only a large retailer, but you also join Prime. You actually join, the business model is not that you just buy stuff, but you actually join us and so we give you movies and books, et cetera. And they find that the average Prime user spends $1,400 a year and the average non-Prime Prime user spends $600 a year. So it has a huge business model impact that they do. So the second is they change business model in a material way. The third is they were really good at change management. They managed change well. It goes back to some of your point on culture. And one of the things about this, Christoph, is digital transformations take very long periods of time. And they, they do step and assess, step and assess. It's highly incremental, you know, steps that were big enough to push, but not so big that they got in trouble. So I'll give you, you know, when, when did Disney's digital transformation start? And the answer is 30 years ago. Is it still, is it still transforming? Yes. Why? Because the technology's changed, the business has changed, et cetera. So digital transformation actually never stops. It just goes on and on and on and a step assess, step assess, step assess. So when they were successful, they understood that is let's not get seduced by the shiny object. Let's go after the business model and get into this great uh, never ending change process. Well said, and uh, I can only agree. In particular, the third one is, uh, in my personal experience, sometimes a little bit overlooked or taken too easy, the change management, right? I mean, you really drive change. And uh, my experience is sometimes you might believe change is over. Everybody has, you know, gotten it. And uh, it's in fact not the case. Yeah, So I couldn't agree more. I mean, you mentioned Netflix. I think it's a great example, right? Where people received uh, on the grounds of a subscription every month, you know, their DVD. And uh, they changed it. They changed the business model. They did not get stuck uh, to the shiny objects, as you said, and they drove change uh, very successfully. And I think, uh, you know, the big, big player, I think, got bankrupt, right, uh, based on the model. So it's a great, I think you mentioned a great example, right? And Chris, if you put our, Netflix is a terrific example. They said, here is our goal, which is to improve the home entertainment experience. That's what we're trying to do. And at the time, you went to the store, you rented a DVD or a cassette, et cetera. They said, we're not going to do that. We're going to, given our goal, what technology? Well, the internet. 
you know, and now you can order through the internet and we actually don't need the cost of a physical store. It's a lot easier that, and not only that, but as a technology advanced, they took advantage of streaming technology, for example, they took advantage of mobile phones, but they held on to the goal. The goal did not change. The technology changed as they looked at new technology and saw, aha, there's a new way to do our business model, a new way to deliver the entertainment to you. So brilliant example of holding fast to the overall goal and capitalizing on the technology as it evolved. All started with solving a pain point for the customers. Great discussion, John. Yeah. Uh, in my point of view, it, what is needed is out-of-the-box thinking. What is needed is what I name tri-storming, that you really allow people to do experiments. As you said, right, you need to take a risk and you, you have to have a failure-tolerant culture. Otherwise, it will be difficult, yeah? John, I could talk to you about this entire arena for hours, to be honest. I think um, we covered already a lot and I want to thank you for that. Yeah, But uh, let me ask you, as always, a kind of a final question here, more privately, because it's really interesting, right? It's a, this entire IT and digital digitalization is a very innovative and a high-frequency arena, right? I mean, you see a lot of technology coming out in short cycles. So how do you keep up your knowledge with the high-speed IT? Oh, I think, Christoph, it's a challenge for us all because it moves so fast and the industry moves so fast. You and I know there's like a, a thousands of startup companies. How in the world do you keep track of all these startup companies? Yeah, well, you can't. I think you do as well as you can. And for me, that involves uh, going to conferences from time to time and listening to people. It involves reading both trade press, but also things like Harvard Business Review and reading books uh, from time to time. I think primarily for me, it has involved uh, talking to people whose judgment I think is terrific, like you. And so all of us develop a network of people who we think are very insightful. So I have a conversation. So what do you think about AI? What do you think about this? The last thing for me, Christoph, is I teach. So I teach at Wharton and I teach at the Harvard Medical School and I write a fair amount. And what I find is when you teach or write and say, all right, I've, I've got a room full of young people and for an hour and a half. And I think I know what it's going on here. But as I start to explain it, I, said, I really have a lot of gaps in my So it forces me to really think through what's really happening here. You know, what's really happening in platforms or really happening in consumer facing devices. So the fact that you actually have to get in front of a group and not embarrass yourself really makes you, forces you to learn a great deal. Yeah, this is a great point. I mean, you said it uh, in particular, the youngsters. I mean, I agree with everything you said, right? It's the congresses, it's the books and so on. But my daughter is eight years old. My son is 14. And, you know, they don't need to meet anymore. They do everything virtually. Uh, my daughter played recently with her friend, eight years old, for one hour virtually. So you can learn a lot from them. It's a different, it's a, it's a different culture. It's a different level. So it's also very inspiring. John, a big thank you for your time and for the very, very interesting and uh, exciting discussion with you. It was a great honor to have you here with all your knowledge and your experience. And let's continue our work on the digitalization in healthcare. Well, thank you, Chris. First of all, thank you again for the invitation. And I think for us to make care better, the type of care we all aspire to see, will take all of us being as smart and as hardworking as we possibly can. Thank you so much, John. In conclusion to today's episode, the healthcare industry has already made great strides toward digitalization. Yet, there is still a host of potential progress to be made. As long as precautions are taken against advancement for advancement's sake, 
and lessons are learned from previous failures, the future of healthcare as we know it will continue to benefit from embracing this technology. This concludes our conversation with John Glazer and Dr. Christoph Sindel. A big thank you to them both for sharing their thoughts with us and a big thank you to you, our listeners. This has been another episode of Shaping the Future of Healthcare from Siemens Health and Ears. Subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts.